Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. All right. Hello. Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have authentic and honest conversations with under-the-radar folk musicians. It's Cindy House. Um, I am not at my house right now, so I'm not in my little studio because there are people coming to view it because I'm trying to sell it, which is pretty exciting. I mean, it's sad because I, I love my house and I wish I could take it with me to Boston when I move, but um, hopefully we'll find somebody cool to live in that house because it's a great neighborhood. Um, in fact, this week on Basic Folk, we are talking to one of my neighbors and one of my favorite musicians that I've met while I've been in Pittsburgh for the past 11 years. His name is Alex Stanton, and he's in the band Townspeople. You may recognize his name from me reading it at the end of Basic Folk because uh, he does all of the little like in-between, and he does the theme song music uh, on the podcast, so excited to have him on. But uh, before we get into it, let's uh, take a moment to thank our sponsors. Him, Basic Folk is supported by Lindsay Myers from LMNO Management. If you like the artists on Basic Folk, she thinks you'll also like the songwriting duo McDean at McDean Sings on Instagram or visit mcdean.co slash basicfolk. So today we are going to be talking to Alex Stanton of the band Townspeople. They play pretty quirky, cute, whimsical indie folk, and Townspeople is spelt all lowercase and people is actually PPL, but I'll put all this at my website, cindyhouse.net. We'll be talking to Alex uh, about the sound he creates in Townspeople, as well as the band that he was in before Townspeople called 28 North, which have a very different sound than uh, what he's making these days. Also, we will touch upon his music school that he runs in Pittsburgh. He runs a, a school called Sunburst School of Music, which employs uh, a lot of great musicians in the Pittsburgh area that have come to form this really unique community. And something really cool about Alex is uh, his mom, a very sweet, awesome lady named Catherine. She used to be uh, in the art department at Mr. Rogers Neighborhood and worked really closely with Fred Rogers for many, many years. And so Alex basically grew up on the set of that TV show and we talk about like what effect that had on him, as well as the really fun story of his first Martin guitar he got, which is connected to his mom working in the art department at Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Um, but first, before we get to our conversation with Alex Stanton, let's take a listen to a song from the latest Townspeople album, Twigs. This is the title track. We'll listen to a clip of this tune and then get to our conversation with Alex on Basic Folk. Get out. 
Welcome to my professional podcast. Testing. Okay, we're good. We're good. Alex Stanton, thank you for coming to the basement. Of course, of course. Walking down the street. Thanks for having me. You are really interested in building things, and that's kind of how you approach your music and your business and your instruments. You like to like hand make instruments and have a very creative eye for that. You're a lifelong inventor. Where did that love of building and inventing come from? It's really interesting. I think from both of my parents, it was early on that, you know, we were just made to be creative in as many different ways as we could. Like one of my first memories as far as that goes is really wanting some WWF wrestling action figures that our friends down the street had and not being able to have them because you know, we had to make all of our toys or whatever. Not that it was um, Wait, the 1800s. Wait, you had to make all toys? No, we didn't have to make all toys, but, like, we just... They were sort of the fast food of toys. You know, like, really kind of plasticky things or, like, ones with guns and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, we couldn't get a ride to the toy store to buy them, so it was kind of... We had to make our own, so... Wait, so what remember, do you mean you couldn't get a ride to the toy store? <laughs> well... Um, my mom wouldn't have taken us to the toy store oh, okay. to buy them and nobody else would either. <laughs> <laughs> but you had, you had the means. You just I mean, didn't I have transportation. I would have saved my allowance to buy them for right. sure. So it's not like I wanted to make my own action figures, but okay. just forced to be resourceful, I guess. But yeah. So, I, you know, we were always making things. My dad had a wood shop and was, you know, really active in there a lot and from an early age had us around power tools and various construction projects or making you know helping us make toys and stuff in the in the garage so um what's your favorite power tool my favorite power tool my dad would be proud if i said the radial arm saw ah yes (laughs) uh it's just really versatile it's really quick and easy pretty safe cuts stuff at fun angles radial arm saw radial arm saw um my mom's two parents were a piano player and her dad a guitar player but they were secretive about it my grandmother i guess played the piano when no one was around and it was like they were teenagers when they walked in and heard her playing the first time and had no idea. And then my grandfather, uh, I was told played the guitar all the time. And I asked him one time, like, do you still play? And he's like, no, I burned it like 25 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) What? Yeah. Did you ask any more questions about that? You know, we haven't talked about it that much music. So in our immediate family though, my parents are two of the least musical people (laughs) <laughs> that I've met to this day, they just, they like 
listening to music and like listened to CDs and stuff around the house. But like as far as singing or making music goes, it was just not a thing for either one of them in any way. It just wasn't a part of my early childhood, I guess, really at all until we had a nice piano teacher lady move in across the street. And this was in um, Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh. In Highland Park. In Highland Park, yes. Um, we were, I want to say like seven or eight, but I might have that wrong. And expected to take piano lessons from her because she was right there. And, and we got a piano, so you have to. And we did for a <laughs> little bit. And I, it wasn't something I really took to at first. I, I liked her. She was fine. And playing the piano was okay. I wasn't, like, very good at it. And then my sister, who's a couple years older than me, she, and she's, like, <laughs> she's a, she was just, like, sort of an intense kid. She was always one step ahead of me negotiating with our parents for things. <laughs> so she negotiated quitting piano lessons. And I remember finding out, like, oh, wait, we could quit piano lessons? Like, definitely doing that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I only had, like, a little bit of piano before giving it up. And then I tried again in fifth grade to play the saxophone because it looked cool. And we were supposed to pick an instrument then. It was like, everyone's doing it. Hmm. And, like a mandatory thing? Um, I think it was... I don't know if it was totally mandatory with the school, but our parents wanted us to. And all the other kids were doing it. So it was like, pick one of these instruments and the drum kit was like looked really cool but they sort of told us like everyone's gonna pick the drum kit if you pick the drum kit like you'll never get to play it because it's gonna be taken all the time so you chose the so i chose the saxophone because it's the popular. second coolest looking one mm -hmm. then that only lasted a couple months too so i didn't actually start playing music until high school and i picked up the guitar one other thing to add about this though is that i was thinking about this recently like even though I didn't really play music, I was a really big music listener in starting around fifth grade. Uh, so I guess I was 10, and we got our first batch of CDs from the, you know, the, the Farmore or whatever, the the NRM. Oh, like that, was it the, the mail, the catalog? No, no, thing? just no. the record store. I mean, I did oh. that several <laughs> times also, but that was like later on. Uh, the greatest scam of the... 20th century. Yeah, 10 CDs for the price of, like, one yeah. tenth of one. And then we'll charge you $100 a month and send you one CD <laughs> until your parents call and get you out of it somehow. Did that really happen to you? Uh, I don't think it was $100, but, yeah, several times. Because then you... You have to you, read the fine print, Alex. Well, you get the 17 CDs, and then they send you a couple more, and your parents get mad because they're getting charged every month. So... <sighs> You cancel it, but then a couple years later, it sounds like a good idea again. Because there's like <laughs> seven more CDs you want. <laughs> and there's maybe like another company that runs the same thing. So Very can... strong marketing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but you, in fifth grade, you became mm -hmm. a music I was, fan. Yeah, I became, I, I would listen like to. Like a serious fan. Music, you know, while I made my Legos and stuff, just constantly, like, and listen to my same favorite CDs again and again, and tape things off the radio and that kind of stuff. Cool. What what uh, were the favorite CDs? Um, the 
Presidents of the United States of America, uh, which is really great kids music. That guy actually makes kids music now, oh. which is really funny to me, because um, it wasn't kids music. There was like F-bombs and stuff right. all over it, but Green Day, Dookie, The Weezer, Blue Album, Counting Crows, August and Everything After. These all make so much sense to me. Please Hammer, Don't Hurt them. Oh, and there it is. <laughs> um, so I also read that Paul Simon Graceland. Yeah, that was influence. that was a, a big one of my parents that was played a lot. Um, it was like they had like two CDs that they would ever listen to and just listen to the same thing over and over again. And that was the one that we liked, my sister and I. Uh. The other one was like Mary Chapin Carpenter or something. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, she might be fine. But it's like, called Come On, Come On or something. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm into country music now, but back then it was like, my sister and I just had this thing that was like the good CD my parents listened to and the bad CD our parents listened to. Like, right. That was the bad one, so the second it came on we were like, no. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so I've made you tell, tell this story in a couple of other interviews, but I love it so much. Can you tell the story of your first Martin guitar? Yeah, so... This is a long-form interview, so I, I can tell you, like, a little more about Take it. Take your time. You so in high school, ninth grade, well, my mom had been a part of the art department for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood for... Um, Specifically, was she, like, a set designer? Uh, well, so the art department was a cross-functional team, like I suppose. Like catch-all. Yeah, they did all kinds of things. They sewed the costumes for the puppets and painted the floor, painted all the sets... And they would be asked to make different, you know, props. Like, we were just watching an episode the other day because my sister's kids are really into it uh, with these, like, propeller hats that they wear to fly around the neighborhood and make believe. My mom walked by the TV and she was like, oh, I made that hat. <laughs> <laughs> so, it would be so fun to watch Mr. Rogers with your mom. It would be like pop-up video. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but I don't think she really watched it that much. She's just never been a... TV person. And it's maybe like, you know, if I finish an album, I, I can never listen to it again. Right. Kind of thing. Same kind of thing. Anyway, we were around the set a lot as kids. We would walk there after school, which was fun too. But the the guitars came when they were doing a, sh uh, a show where they had a music shop. Joe Negri is a um, famous guitar, jazz guitar player from Pittsburgh. He was part of the show in the Joe Negri's music shop segment where Fred was going to go there and learn about guitars and stuff. And so them being uh, a nonprofit, the company that produced the show, they just asked different music stores and things for donations of instruments. Mm -hmm. Like they asked Martin, they asked Ovation, I think, donated a bunch of instruments. And, you know, they put them in the set. And then when they were done, they sold them to the cast and the crew for, you know, a a deep discount. They had been donated, so the money was going to Family Communications, the company that made... Public television. Public television, exactly. There was actually two that we got because they ran this segment a couple times that year. And the first one was this Ovation guitar, which if anyone out there is familiar with Ovation guitars, but they have this molded plastic back. Mm. Um, Melissa Etheridge. Yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> it was like the guitar of the future, you know, 20 years ago or right. whatever. Yeah. And um, and this was like a small one. And it was like, it was pretty ugly. It was really, in retrospect, it was really hard to play. Mm. And it actually, I was like, okay, I'll I'll take that. 
I think that one she got for free, actually. And I was like, sure, guitar, that sounds cool. You know, I like music with guitars in it. And it sat there for a couple months, and then I tried just like one day, picked it up, and went on the family computer and looked up a guitar tab for a Green Day song and played it on one string. I did that a couple times with a couple of other songs like that, and then a few months later they were running the show again, and that was when the Martin became a possibility, and my mom talked to me about it. She was like, well, we have the chance to get this Martin. I'd never heard of it. It's like, these are really nice guitars. You know, we could do that, but you have to take lessons. And I'd just been kind of playing around in the room by myself, and I was like, okay, that sounds like a deal. And also, at the same time, I had uh, some friends of mine in high school who were like, we were listening to a lot of Blink-182, and they were like, we want to start a band in the mold of Blink-182. And we don't play instruments either, so you could be in it. You'd be on the same, you know, we just all got these guitars and drums for Christmas. So mm. you could be in on the ground floor, basically. <laughs> <laughs> a startup. Exactly, yeah. I was eager to take them up on that. How long did your mom work for Mr. Rogers? It was from the early 90s until the show ended. In, Long time. You know, 2000, 2001, something like that. It's so, I, I want to hear more about the effect that being, like, just basically, like, growing up on the set of Mr. Rogers had on you. I got to see behind all of the the things like the castle and the tree and stuff and go inside and they were not what I expected I think on the inside you know like if you've ever been on any kind of a set it's like oh wow this is not real <laughs> you yeah know? like this is a set everything is just kind of lashed together as inexpensively and quickly as it can be in order right. to make this one side appear I, I guess like I I'm interested in also knowing about, like, the emotional effect of, like, knowing Fred Rogers in person and, like, how did that, I don't know if that was, had any kind of impact on you. Yeah, I mean, well, so because you started working there when we were rel relatively young, we didn't, like, have this period of having him be this celebrity before meeting him. It was like we met him kind of early on, too. So it was something we were kind of proud of to our you know, peers in a way that's, like, just kind of silly. Like, oh, we know Fred Rogers, you know? The guy was just exactly the same as he was on the show, off the show. It was just, like, who he was. He was mm -hmm. uh, really kind and really would just sort of sit down and talk to you like, like he was talking to the camera in the same way. Explain stuff that we were seeing on the, on the set and that kind of thing. And I guess it just felt like normal life mm. you were on the show i was i'm in a doctor's office episode i'm a, like you know kid two in the waiting room <laughs> or whatever did you get royalties for that uh no <laughs> you went to the university of vermont i did yes for two years i, I didn't graduate was it for music it was not it was for it was in the engineering school oh okay do you have a degree in engineering? No. I went to University of Vermont to study engineering. I was also really interested in music at the time, playing guitar. In those kind of two years, I 
realized that I was much more interested in playing the guitar than I was in... I mean, I was interested in the school part, and I was doing well. I think what happened is that some of my other friends went to music school in Pittsburgh at Duquesne, Mm -hmm. and they came up to visit me, see a show from my band, and we hung out one night. You know, they'd driven a long way. So it was, like, very exciting when people from Pittsburgh came to visit you. It's 12 hours or whatever. <laughs> oh um, we had a lot of fun, and we talked for a long time. They talked me into dropping out of school to join their band. Wow. <laughs> Which was at 28 North? Yes, 28 North, right. And it was, like, a, it was sort of a pivotal moment in my life. And, you know, just dropping out of school, obviously, was big. And it was a surprise to a lot of the people around me because I had good grades and seemed like a sensible person. Mm. Uh, (laughs) When I told my parents about it, they were actually really supportive in a way that, like, they were like, okay, well, you know, at least you sound like you know what you want to do, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, more than could say about a lot of kids that are continuing with college, you know, or, or you're not like failing out and fumbling along with, with your life. You've got something in mind and you want to go for it and you know you should do that and you can go back to school at some point if you want to and I think I was also of the mind that I'm like well I'm gonna take a semester off and do this and then I'm gonna go back to school but you eventually went to the University of Pittsburgh I had kind of spent the year playing music living in a house with these guys and like they were all music students at Duquesne and it was actually like a lot of my music education came from that year and the next couple of years of living with these other people who were really dedicated musicians and getting some of the the schooling. Like I was like, I like music. It's my favorite thing in the world. And you have to go to college. So I'm going to go to music college instead of engineering school. And I'll just do it at Pitt so I can keep doing my band thing. And I did that for one semester. So I found this quote about how you started Townspeople, which is your current project, Mm -hmm. to the effect of, I was trying to do something that felt pleasurable to sing. I had been forcing myself with rock songs that weren't right for me to sing. What kind of music were you making before Townspeople, and why didn't it feel right? Well, that's interesting. So, like I said, my parents weren't really singers. I was not really a singer either until I started playing with 28 North, I was, you know, like a lead guitar player and playing solos and like that was kind of my thing and we were playing rock music. I started singing background vocals because we were all music nerds and trying to make harmonies was like, sounded like a good idea. (laughs) I would like be playing guitar, we were really loud, you know, at a bar or something and I would be like trying to remember my note that I was supposed to come in on, on the singing and I would have to like bend down near my amplifier and, like, play that note on my guitar and, like, try to get it in my head, and then I would try to sing it, and it would come out wrong anyway. I think I had, like, a really tough time starting as a singer. So I I started taking some singing lessons, but I was also, like, really involved in the songwriting of that band from the beginning, and it was something that we, like, all thought was really important. So, like, everybody was writing songs, and we were, like, trying to amass as many songs as we possibly could have it was like a point of pride for us or like a thing to tell my parents of like you know I'm not going to college but like my band has a hundred songs you know what I mean? <laughs> it was like same difference mm-hmm. <laughs> originally I was writing songs for 
other people to sing for the, there was two other guys that sang lead vocals and I would kind of, you know, write my song and show it to them. And, and we would talk about who, like which one of them should sing it. And then over time, eventually they kind of convinced me like, oh, you should try singing this one or like. You know, maybe I wrote one that like neither of them liked, and they're like, "Why, why don't you sing this?" One? Isn't that of... what happened to um, uh, in Faces that Ooh La La song? Rod Stewart didn't want to oh, sing yeah. it, so that like that Ronnie true? Wood, he's like, "You sing this," yeah. and it's like the best Faces right. song. It is the best Faces song. I didn't know that. Fun fact. Fun fact. Um, yeah, like I was taking singing lessons. I had a great teacher. I took them for a long time. They were actually like a really important part of my life also because when I became a music teacher later, those experiences in the singing lessons were some of my most valuable material to draw on for how to work with other people trying to learn music. What really worked for you in those lessons? Singing lessons are really personal, right? You're very like exposed when you're trying to work on your voice in a way that like with guitar isn't necessarily the case. Mm. Or maybe I was just like naturally had an easier time with guitar so in my lessons I didn't feel as like like I was putting myself out there the same way Mm -hmm. I had a teacher that was really really good at making it sort of calm and conversational and like you know you can relax and do this because you know the other thing is about singing is that like if you're tense or whatever in different parts of your body it like has an actual effect on the way that your voice Mm -hmm. sounds or whatever you know being able to do it calmly in front of another person was like a real first hurdle for me and the way in which she did that by just like the flow of the lesson and like just our week-to-week conversations and like relationship was it was very helpful it was very effective of Mm -hmm. getting me to calm down and relax my shoulders and like you know sing a little better each time, you know? Yeah. But I was still like, I was to kind of get back to your original point. Um, you know, we were trying to make some like high octane rock music. I was trying to sing high and hard. And like, you know, the other two guys were able to sing with like a sort of raspy screamy quality that like, I really love, you know, in a lot of singers, but, like, I just never was able to quite get that. I would picture Chris Cornell in my mind. (laughs) (laughs) You're a very visual person. Yeah, yeah. I would open my mouth, and it just never quite sounded like that. Um, My way of trying to produce those sounds was to, like, push really hard, which, I I mean, I kind of knew wasn't exactly the right way to do it anyway. But so when I started singing the townspeople songs or or like writing on the songs that became the first townspeople album it was like all of a sudden i was like okay well i don't have to push anymore i don't have to sing try to sing this high a anymore or whatever i can just like try to find notes that feel good the singing i was doing with 28 north i would i would lose my voice every night we would play a gig i would wake up the next morning and like totally hoarse like I couldn't even talk mm. you know in part it was because I was just like pushing everything really hard to try to be like aggressive I don't know that just didn't really suit me in the end it sounds like this journey of trying to find out who you are as a musician 
is a really important one for you and one that you then take and apply into the philosophy of Sunburst, where you said, you say about Sunburst, your music school, is that you want to help people figure out what kind of musician they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and I think I became a music teacher nine years ago or so now, and it was kind of right around the same time that I was sort of figuring this stuff out with my own singing and music about doing stuff that felt like right for me for whatever reason. And when I started teaching guitar, it was, it was, it just sort of felt obvious to me. And, you know, sitting down with somebody, you know, my first question is always like, well, like what kind of music do you like? You know, making no assumptions that like what I like has anything to do with what they like. And Mm -hmm. also I have always been sort of all over the place as a music listener and with 28 North too, we played all kinds of, you know, we would try a reggae song and try a country song and maybe to, to a fault, like we, we had to have a hundred songs, right? So they can't be a hundred <laughs> rock songs. And I think with teaching, it makes you be even more versatile because, you know, you don't even get to draw the line on pop country like you want to or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like somebody will come in like, you know, I want to play like this Florida Georgia line song and you're like, all right, let's listen let's to it. it. You know, there's, yeah. there's got to be something them, in yeah. there for meet me. Meet them where they are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's interesting to know that you were writing songs for 28 North for other people. Uh, how did your writing change when you started writing for townspeople? Um, so my writing would be, like when I was writing for other people to sing, I would use this little like kind of a falsetto voice in the bedroom by myself where you want to give us a little demonstration <laughs> yeah that means like <laughs> yeah when I'm going down, 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 down. you know like that was like a rock song really you can good. take that if you want no yeah. it's good yeah. I'm gonna make my own mp3 yeah. <laughs> put it on my iPad. ringtone yeah yeah so then Sometimes we would change the key of the song for somebody else, but sometimes we would just leave it because they could sort of sing with the full voice up there. And I had to stop doing that when I started writing more songs for me to sing because I would write them with this, like, head voice, and then when I tried to sing them out loud, it would be like, oh, I either have to change the key of it, like move the whole thing down, which Mm. would change how the instrumentation works and you know just all kinds of other things about the whole song would shift in a way that sometimes didn't work for it i started trying to write my songs out loud as in like singing them where they were eventually going to be sung in kind of my like um, that sounds scary well yeah i mean it, especially like if other people are around you know yeah i often have always started songs with kind of nonsensical mouth sounds um you know not with words but with like and also not with just like a humming sound but with some kind of vocal articulation that's Mm -hmm. just alien language or whatever um just because it has felt like a way to try to dig around for words or dig around for sounds that want to become certain words Mm -hmm. you know sometimes just like a a certain vowel or syllable just like feels right on a note and then you'll kind of like puzzle pieces just kind of play around with different mm. words that use that vowel until you 
land on one that kind of makes sense and then put two of them together and then... I really feel like I'm inside your head right now. <laughs> it's wild. Yeah. Uh... So what about lyrically in looking up a bunch of stuff about you and townspeople, the thing that kept coming up about your writing was dystopian or near future dystopian worlds like love songs in a dystopian world yeah what is up with that <laughs> okay so well a couple things i'm a big science fiction fan i also oftentimes instead of having a concept like a song about my father or whatever i tend to write well so once i get the ball rolling on a song as far as like having a basic feel, a couple of words maybe, I tend to like get images in my mind instead of words or maybe in addition to the words. I, I kind of like write from a picture. I sort of maybe have a couple of words that make me picture something and then I try to picture it even more like a situation or a scene or something and then try to like flesh it out with words or really cool. or like write around the like sort of write off of it like I'm picturing that and it's making me write these words that won't be describing that picture in any way but it's just like my source material kind of I want to know about your kitcheny folk pop trinkets <laughs> you make instruments out of Household well, the, the materials? Trinkets, no, the trinkets are the songs. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I do like to try to make instruments out of things lying around or, or improvise sounds, um, you know, by experimenting with different things to hit together or different ways to play an instrument, putting things in the guitar or hitting the piano with something that you wouldn't have thought to or whatever. One of my ideas with the Townspeople record, at least the Twigs, the most recent one, was these really short, cute songs. I kind of pictured them like little little trinkets on your desk. Oh. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're all just sort of a verse and a chorus, and they're like a couple minutes long. You know, each one has a, a similar sonic palette of, like, instruments that I used but has like, you know, its own sound that makes it a special one. So they're kind of like trying to make them into little collector's items. Like that kind of, um, it's just the sort of thing I like to picture while I'm working on music. Or oh, that's really cool. There is this like earnestness, this like super cutesy element to your songs, which I think is a super fine line to walk um, mm -hmm. where if something can be, whimsical but then it like crosses the line and becomes super lame however mm -hmm. like townspeople has this like something in there that makes it work and makes it cool i would say maybe it's probably because the mc hammer <laughs> cd but what do you think it is about yeah. can you talk about that line and uh, yeah i'm i'm like i'm keenly aware of that line in in other people's work like as a critic like if we're listening to john mayer songs They'll just be like one John Mayer song that I like, oh, like that one's pretty good. And then this other one, I'm like, no, that's way across that line. And who would ever listen to that? It's right. lame is like like the the right word to describe like that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and I, um, as far as my own songs go, like 
I think it's probably harder for me to tell when that's happening. I I tend to approach the or writing an album by trying, you know, sort of my same thing from 28 North is just trying to get as many songs, as many ideas on the table as I can and then and then pick the best ones. It's easiest for me to see that kind of thing in comparison to other songs. But also, you know, I depend on uh, like Jake Hanner, who I've worked with for these, and and my wife uh, Danielle to oh, tell me when so I'm so much cooler than you. <laughs> tell me when I'm being lame. <laughs> and um, she and she will not hesitate. No, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, and I mean, I, you know, I I do spend a lot of the time I'm working on my music alone, but like there are points in the process where it's like, mm-hmm. all right, I need to try this out on somebody, you know, and I'll just kind of like send it to Jake or, or sit down with him or I have other friends that I'll trust to do this kind of work with them where I basically sit down with them, put on the recording of a song and then stare at them and, <laughs> <laughs> and just study their reaction. And you're open to their suggestions and their feedback. You don't just want to hear like, oh, that was great. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I definitely want to hear that was great. But like, I also, you know, it's one of those things where like, I know I need to hear their feedback and I don't always take their suggestions, which is almost kind of like I get more out of it by the way that I feel while I'm watching them listen to it than what they say when they're done with it. Visual person. Well, and not even like them, but like me, like I'll try something that could be really charming or could be really lame. And then I will have a captive audience. I'll be driving somewhere with my wife and I will be like, do you want to listen to this song I've been working on? It's voice memo on my phone. And she'll be like, of course. And I put it on. And within like two seconds, I know Based, based on, like, you know, is my, like, blood pressure going up? You're like, <laughs> I'll know right away if it works or not, you know? Wow. That's great. Um, so, Jake Hanner, I meant to ask you a question about your collaboration with him. You've worked with him um, on both of Townspeople's albums, and also you are you're an adjunct member of Jake's band, the indie pop band Denora, which is a Pittsburgh band. Um uh, maybe you could just talk about what clicks with the two of you and why you continue to work with him. It's hard to say. I mean, I, you know, I, I really like Jake as a person. I think he's got a really great ear for music. Um, I so- sought him out to work with when I started working on the first Townspeople album because of his band, Denora, who I had been aware of for a long time and kind of the sound that they were going for was like, a little bit of a similar thing in walking that line that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. He's one of the people that I can work with in a room together and, you know, we can be honest with each other and we can like, and I can like sing without tensing my shoulders or whatever. And like, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's not everybody for me. That's like, I have a hard time with that sometimes. So with playing with Denora. I I guess with townspeople because I play most of the instruments I end up being kind of my own sideman but I I love the role of not being the center of attention sometimes and like playing part like being a sort of part player or, mm. you know 
It's a little bit more relaxing. Musical, like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's more relaxing, but it's also just like, you know, it's, it's fun to, for me to like, as a guitar player to just play, you know, the same two notes back and forth for the Mm. whole song and just be this one tiny little part of the bigger picture without needing to play a part that stands on its own or like takes over the song or whatever. Mm. Um, and that's kind of the, that's like the number one requirement for being in, being in Denora because it's all of the parts are like that. <laughs> yeah. Your music, like your personality, has a pretty like gentle disposition. And something I've observed just being in Pittsburgh for the last, you know, decade plus is that the bands that do really well here are kind of like aggressive throwdown party bands, mm-hmm. um, kind of like the opposite of Denora and Townspeople. Um, also, we're living in a really like macho world where mm. bullies usually are coming out on top these days. Do you feel like you're up against it sometimes with this that kind of mentality? And what can you say about having a gentle demeanor in the world that we live in, both like musically and personally? Yeah. Well, like I was saying earlier, you know, I, I would do more aggressive music. I just can't sing. <laughs> I just can't sing it. <laughs> no, but um, like for me, you know, I don't really think about it like that. I just try to be nice to people. And like I was saying with the music, I try to make music that feels good to me. And, you know, feeling good is usually like something positive and I end up with positive music. And I mean, I know that, you know, there's like, a real way to get dark, darker feelings out through music. And I definitely have that in, in me too, and have written or, you know, maybe it's just me sitting there playing by myself and kind of gotten to that kind of thing, but it hasn't been on a townspeople record, I guess. But like, (laughs) you know, I, I think just being, being nice is really important both in music and in life and in everything. And, um, you know, it's not like automatic. You have to like, you have to try sometimes, especially in this day and age. As far as the, I mean, the the question of like all the music being really aggressive or, or throwing down, throw down party bands, as you say, mm-hmm. um, I, I have sort of a separate theory about that because, you know, a lot of those people are, really kind and gentle too when you sit down and, and talk to them you know a lot of like like metal musicians are like the totally yeah teddy yeah. bears you know so um we're not talking about metal though we're talking about like rock and roll bands. yeah but so one of my theories about that as far as maybe it's just as far as pittsburgh goes but like the there's there's sort of a challenge for for making townspeople work in the live setting and it's one of the reasons why i tend to prefer to have, like, a 10-person band. I mean, just playing with 10 people is really fun, and getting all the background vocals is, really, like, really important to me. But, like, so a lot of the venues where people go to see music are also bars, and you have to kind of compete with people talking who haven't seen each other in a while or that are, like, you know, ordering their drinks and, like, they're drinking, they're hanging out. There aren't a lot of, like listening room type places in Pittsburgh. There are a few, but even those ones are kind of bars too. So 
you know, I, I think if the main outlet for live music is going to be a place where you have to be loud to really compete and be heard, then you're going to have a lot of loud bands. And if we had a bunch of, um, like, Joe's Pub kind of, like, acoustic music room places here, we might have a lot more delicate music being showcased. I mean, and, and we have plenty, but it's just like, it's harder to find venues and even still it's harder to like kind of make the sound work in in the room where you have people paying attention and you have people getting what you're going for Mm. Um, and i find if i have 10 people on stage even though we're playing delicate music it gets bigger and it like demands more attention kind of and it can work in a venue that's a bar whereas like if it's just me solo or me with one or two other people, it really has to be, you know, in a radio studio practically, or else it's just mm. lost, you know? A library. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> a library. Cool. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been awesome. Sure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. See you, see you in the neighborhood, because we're neighbors. We are neighbors. I will. Okay, that's it. For Basic Folk, Alex Stanton, a wonderful musician in the Pittsburgh area that I have uh, come to know and love uh, over my years here in, in Pittsburgh. He's he's one of the greatest and uh, really great neighbor as well. You can check out his music on uh, online uh, at his website and on Spotify. Unfortunately, Alex doesn't tour too much, but there are some videos of the band performing live, so you can see that, like, 10-person incarnation of townspeople. Uh, Thanks a lot for listening to Basic Folk. You can find out more information about the podcast at cindyhouse.net. Also want to take a moment to quickly thank our sponsors. So Basic Folk is brought to you in part by Lindsay Myers at LMNO Management. If you love traditional roots music, she wants you to check out Tina and Her Ponies album Champion at tinaandherpony.com or wherever you listen to music. And also want to say thank you to WIUP-FM in Indiana University of Pennsylvania. They are going to be airing Basic Folks Saturdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. So if you are in the area in Indiana, PA, you can listen on 90.1 WIUP or you can listen online at WIUPFM.org. Thanks to them. And thank you to Alex again for being on the podcast and for doing our music here on Basic Folk. He makes all those instrumental interludes. Thanks to Laura McCarthy for her support on the podcast. And, of course, thank you for listening to Basic Folk. See you next week. Bye.